Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. So one of the things I want to do here on the Nonprofit Insider at the start of every episode, or mostly every episode where we don't have guests or interviews or anything like that, is I want to I want to kind of hit a little bit of a, of a news segment. And one of the things I love to do because I'm such a nerd like that is I like to just type in nonprofit in Google and just see what comes up. Just go type in nonprofit and I don't even do a web search. I really just look at the news specifically. So maybe there's something particular that maybe I'm kind of in the zone for, maybe like nonprofit volunteers or nonprofit, I don't know, uh, housing, whatever the case may be. But it's one of my favorite things to do is just type in nonprofit, click news and see what comes up. So at the start of every episode, uh, to the best of my ability, what I want to do is I want to talk about some just random news articles that are based around the nonprofit industry from from just across the nation or across the world. Uh, And we'll kind of do it like that. So that's going to be something that we'll do here on, on, a, on a pretty regular basis just to kind of get the, the vibe started before we get into the main topics uh, after a couple of minutes. And so I'll try to keep it short, no more than, you know, six minutes, maybe seven minutes, and we'll just do it that way. And one of the ones I found, actually, I just typed in nonprofit and I'll, I'll go to like the first page. I'll type in the, the seventh page, the 10th page, whatever the case may be. And I found one that I thought was really good. And this is from the, it looks like it's from the the Norfolk area. The the website is wavy.com, W-A-V-W, or W-A-V-Y, which one, I love the name. And this looks like it's a news website. And the title of the this particular article is called Amazon Donates Cribs and Funds to Hampton Roads Nonprofits. This is by Sarah Good. And this was this actually came out in December 15th. And so it has some key things, right? Kids, cribs, Amazon, nonprofit, just the, 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 the things that are right up our alley. And then the article by Sarah Good, she talks about how um, the Amazon's basically, they donated some cash and then they donated cribs. So let me read a little bit from you here. This is from Hampton Roads, Virginia, which great area. I've had a chance to go out there before. Lots of water, Hampton, Newport, uh, Norfolk, that type of area, really nice out there. And so in the article it says, and I quote, in this season of giving, Amazon donated 200 cribs and $10,000 to the Children's Health Investment Program of Southampton Roads Thursday. The mission of CHIP, C-H-I-P, is to combat infant mortality in the Hampton Roads area. Amazon's donation will help assist in the goal by providing cribs for safe sleep as well as monetary funds to support their sleep tight program. And it goes on to say some more stuff about how um, Hampton Roads community, uh, they have like, they provide sleep education, they provide the cribs directly to parents at no cost, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on to talk about how unsafe sleeping is the top cause of death for children 
from one week to one year of age, which is definitely true. I remember when I, when I had my son, like that first year, it was like I was looking all the time because you're just so nervous. You know, you hear about so many like SIDS and uh, infant death syndrome of, of, of like children that they're just sleeping and they suffocate and things like that. So I remember... Uh, for me, that first year being like extremely scary. And so as I'm reading this article, I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And look, I'm one of those people who I've been personally critical of Amazon. Um, I used to live in Seattle back in the early 2010s when, when Amazon was really blowing up. Because when I first started using Amazon, it was really just for me to buy books when I was in college. And moving to Seattle, I knew so many individuals that worked at Amazon that hated it. They despise it. They have moments of, despite making, you know, $150,000, $180,000 a year, they really did not like working for the organization. So, look, I've been critical of Amazon and the Walmarts and other big organizations, like any of us have, right? There's so many instances where you kind of look up and you're like, dang, like, I don't like working for this organization. I don't believe what this organization is about. And we've all had that, right? Whether it's been with a big organization like Amazon, or if it's been with a local municipality or a local air conditioning unit, whatever the case may be, we've all had experiences of having a little bit of like guilt with organizations, whether they're big or small, for-profit or non-profit. But Listen, no need to be negative, right? There's just so many instances of many organizations that aren't doing a whole lot. And sometimes even if it's performative, it's still pretty nice, right? And so the fact that Amazon donated these 200 cribs and $10,000, that's still pretty cool, right? I mean, even if even if every single crib they donated is worth a, just $100, that's still $20,000 that the organization didn't have to spend. So Listen, I got to give credit where credit's due. Shout out to Amazon. Shout out to this organization, Children's Health Investment Program of Southampton Rose. I'll put put those in uh, show notes so you get a chance to check them out. And, and it just reminds me of a really good story. I remember years and years ago, I was working with a nonprofit and my ex-wife, my wife at the time, uh, I was talking to her and I was like, I'm just I'm working for this nonprofit. They just got a big check from a Fortune 10 company, not a Fortune 500, not a Fortune 100. I mean, like a top 10 for-profit organization in terms of uh, revenue that they bring in, right? They bring in a lot of revenue, a lot of profit. I mean, they're in the top 10 uh, of Fortune companies in, in America. And I was like, I don't know, what if they want to use that money to kind of move the organization in the direction they want? You know, all the things that come when you're like young, you're in your 20s and you're all idealistic and you don't want to sell out, yada, yada, yada. And I remember my ex-wife said, yeah, that's true, but let me ask you a question. Would you rather the money be in their hands or the money be in your hands? And I remember she told me that and I was like, dang. Yeah, you're right. I, I know it, it, if if Amazon came honestly, if Amazon came to me right now and they said, "Hey, we want to give you thirty thousand dollars. You can take uh, twenty thousand, give it to any organization you want, and you keep the other ten. Or if they said, "Just take all thirty thousand and donate it," do you think I won't say, "Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna take the money." So uh, big big shout outs to them. Big out shouts to this organization, uh, and that's your nonprofit news of the day.
back when I was in college, for me, this was back in 2009, 2010. It was my final two years of college. And I had started volunteering for an organization called Western North Carolina AIDS Project. We called it WINCAP for short. And, and their organization, actually, they're still around out there in the Western North Carolina area. And they focused, obviously, on helping individuals that um, worked in HIV AIDS, uh, family members that were affected by HIV AIDS, and helping a little bit in the research, not really a whole lot. That wasn't that whole ordeal. But this was around the time I was really finding my path in the volunteer space. I had been doing it in high school, went to specifically to this college. Granted, they gave me a lot of money to go to this college, but I went to this college because I was like, you know what? I'm really interested in the idea of community and volunteerism. So I ended up going to this college in, in North Carolina and it was in Western North Carolina. So I ended up volunteering with this organization, had a, a really, really good time. And they're still around to this day. Uh, and they did mainly work in, like I said, in the Western North Carolina area. So we're talking Asheville, that's where they were located at, but they did work for Morris Hill, Weaverville, if you're out there in Hendersonville, Boone, North Carolina, shout out to the Mountaineers. That's where they kind of had their focus in. And for a little bit of time, not a lot, but for a little bit of time, they would have me uh, volunteering and working the front desk. I can probably count the number of times they had me do that on one hand. It, it probably was like four or five times. They would just say, hey, sit at this desk, when phone calls come in, and you remember, this is like 2009, 2010. There wasn't a, Instagram wasn't a thing. Twitter wasn't a thing. We were just starting to really get on Facebook and really jump away from MySpace. So they said, all you have to do is sit at this desk and as phone calls come in, you kind of like dispatch it, right? They want to talk to Sarah or they want to talk to Jim or Muhammad. I'm just making up names. They want to talk to whoever, you just kind of like do it that vibe. But one of the things that came with volunteering in that particular space and being in that front desk is one, you get a lot of phone calls that people will call and 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 the they'd say, oh, you know, I'm looking for such and such or hoping to talk to such and such. And for the most part, you're just kind of patching people through. Every now and then, of course, you get wrong phone numbers or they're looking to kind of uh, talk to another organization, whatever the case may be. But one of the things I found so interesting about being at that front desk, taking these phone calls, learning about the organization in real time, was how many instances you would have of, of potential clients, of people who had real world issues, right? We're talking folks who, hey, I'm getting ready to get kicked out of my house. I don't have enough money for rent. Can you help me with that? Is that something you help me with? Um, hey, my, my, my water heater just gave out. It's the middle of January. It's snowing in, in there in Asheville or the Weaverville area. Do you have the ability to like help me buy a new one? You would get a lot of these calls. And there's so many nonprofits that exist in the world and I'm, you know, in a lot of this podcast, we focus on nonprofits in the United States in that particular space. But there's so many nonprofits in, in the entire world that have a particular mission, right? Maybe they do research for a particular illness. Maybe they do work with 
helping individuals with technology. Maybe they do uh, community programs and gatherings, right? But nonprofits don't have the ability to do everything. They all, so many nonprofits can only really pick one or two lanes, right? And that's where you get into uh, nonprofit. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm trying to think of the word. It's gonna haunt me a little. I look at it a little bit. When you get into nonprofit uh, space and you're trying to do too much, right? Nonprofits try to rein it in, right? And it's the same with for-profits, right? If you are Wells Fargo, your business is in loaning money. Your business ideally is not in owning homes. A lot of people think, oh, you know, these banks, they want to do um, uh, foreclosures on homes and they want to do foreclosures on cars. The, the banks don't care about that. They care about loaning out money and getting interest and gaining more money. That's their business. If you're Ford, if you're Chevy, your business is making cars, making transportation, and that's kind of your niche, right? You're not in the business of making cars and boats and motorcycles and making spaceships, right? <laughs> like you, you really have to, for the most part, pick a lane because that's where you have the ability to focus. And I, I remember what it was. It was called, it's called mission creep, right? Where you think as a nonprofit, you have the ability to go and do just a little bit more. We'll talk about that in another podcast, but you, you don't have that ability. And so with so many nonprofits in the United States, there's so many of them that get phone calls every single day. I can't pay my rent. My car just died. I don't have health insurance. My kids don't have clothes, right? And, and so many nonprofits do an amazing job of having resources and having the ability to send clients in a particular direction. But one of the things I always say when it comes to working in a nonprofit space, it's heartbreaking telling clients or potential clients no. It, 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 and it's so hard to the it's so hard to be able to sit on that phone call to get that email to have a person in front of you, right? And they're telling you some of the hardest pains that they may be experiencing, right? A flood just came through my house um, and, and I don't have the ability to feed my children at that point in time, right? Um, I, I lost my job. I collected unemployment for uh, months. I ran out of unemployment. I couldn't find a new job. We're in a recession and I don't have internet access to be able to get new jobs. And the library in my small community is not open long enough for me to even try to find a job. So there's just so many instances of people in the nonprofit space experiencing heartache of telling people, no, no, we don't do that, unfortunately. Here, can you call 311 or 211, whatever the case may be in your local area, or no, we don't do that, but I can give you a number. There's something that's really, you can almost be downtrodden a little bit. You can be beaten down a little bit when someone calls or you're talking to someone, they're going through a really tough time and you're like, not only do you say no, but you're like, actually, we can't help you go over there. There's something about pushing someone in a direction that, you like, look, we can't do it, so you have to go over here. And I've had many of those experiences where someone calls me on my work cell phone or directly in the office, and they're like, I I've called 
18 numbers. I talked to my local United Way. I've talked to my local food pantry. I talked to my local church association and they said to call this number and I called them and then they said to call that number and now I'm calling you and you're sending me to another number. It's heartbreaking. It's hard. And there's a lot of side effects that can come with that. I've had a chance to talk to so many people in the nonprofit space over the years who say the side effects can can really can get at your soul, right? Um, it can be easy, and this is a big side effect, it can be easy to lose track of who you're helping when you're constantly telling people no. And not only telling people no, we can't help you at all, there are many instances where maybe your organization does do clothing, right? And you have families that come in and they get clothing for free or at a really, really low rate, right? Maybe you ask for tips just to kind of keep the process going a little bit. But then maybe that same person is like, hey, can you help me get a new stove? Um, my roof has a leak in it and the leak is like right in my kid's bedroom and I've been patching it up, but I, I, I'm at a point where I can't do it anymore. Okay, can you help me with that? And so you'll even have clients that you're working with and that you are able to help and still, and still you have to tell that person no. And, and there's a, there, there's something really strange and really, and really odd about uh, rejecting individuals because we know there's a lot of privilege that can come in the nonprofit space. There's a lot of various aspects of power and influence, even for people that work in the nonprofit space that maybe they get a little bit more paycheck, they get a little bit more money than the clients they help, but maybe not a whole lot, but it's enough that you can see the discrepancy, you can feel the imbalance. So that's a big side effect that I've seen of you lose track of who you're helping because you're telling so many individuals no that you become numb to it. You can kind of lose that aspect of it. Another thing that I've seen as, as it relates to a side effect um, is you can feel like a hamster in a wheel. This is probably something many people in the nonprofit space know at all kinds of levels, but especially people that are working directly with clients or at the ground level, which is an overwhelming majority of individuals. We, we know there's a lot of big nonprofits and there's a lot of people in really high levels. Uh, they have C-suite offices, if you will. Uh, but there's so many of us that can feel like I'm in this hamster wheel. I'm trying to help people. And for 20 years, I've been helping people, but I've, I haven't had a chance to help so many more. And you're just spinning and going and going and you're giving your all to the point where not only do you lose track of who you're trying to help and come numb to it, you can get burnt out. And we're seeing that post-COVID, right? We're kind of seeing a little bit less of it. You're not hearing as much of it in the news, but it still exists where people are just burnt out. They're burnt out of helping people, trying to do their best, trying to make the world a better place and going, you know what, I need a break. Whether it's six months, whether it's uh, two years, whatever the case may be. And, and there's so many individuals that get into the nonprofit space and they say, this is really crazy. I, I'm tired, I wanna kind of back away, right? So those are just some of the things that I've observed. Uh, and that's more of a feeling aspect of telling clients no. It's really hard and it can really hit at you. So 
For all you nonprofit workers out there, I see where you're coming from. Keep doing the work that you're doing, but it's okay to be able to step back, take a break, because we just know you can't help everybody. You know it. The client deep down knows it, uh, but sometimes we live in a society that just makes it really, really tough. One of the segments I want to do here on Nonprofit Insider on a semi-regular basis, not every episode because don't have enough time for that, but one of the things I want to do, you know, every three to four episodes is a segment I want to call Leaders in the Industry. There are a lot of individuals in the nonprofit space that are doing some really amazing things. And there'll be many moments over the life of this podcast where we'll talk specifically about nonprofit organizations and their structure, the way they came about, the history. And we're going to do it with nonprofits, both big and small. I got a lot of time on my hands. I do a lot of research. And of course, you always have the ability to let me know about any nonprofit leaders uh, in your respective world that you think I should know. And they don't have to be big nonprofits or part of a big organization. They could be uh, part of organizations that are local, that are doing community work at the federal, the state, the local level, wh- whatever the case may be. Uh, so we'll kind of mess around with that. And I have to think really, really hard because I said, you know what? I want to be able to highlight someone that is doing some really amazing things and kind of get us all on the same boat because I wanted to kind of focus on a bigger organization or at least an industry leader that's doing some really big things. And I remember a few years ago, maybe back in 2016, I was uh, just watching TV. And I think I was watching like an old school TV and a commercial came up and it was a commercial for AARP. And they had a bunch of individuals that were talking about being AARP members and some of the things that they're doing and some of the rebranding that AARP was really experiencing like the mid-2010s. And one of the, the, the people that really stood out to me whose names I start hearing more and more and more about was the CEO of AARP and she was in a commercial. And I thought, dang, she seems like a really impressive person. Let me do a little bit of research about her and kind of follow her a little bit. And that CEO, and still is the CEO of AARP, is Joe Ann Jenkins. And I remember kind of first learning a little bit more about uh, Miss Jenkins, Joanne Jenkins, and thinking, this person seems like a really impressive person. And so for a lot of people that may not know, AARP is actually a nonprofit organization. A lot of their work is really based around lobbying. A lot of people may not realize that. Uh, They do a lot of work, of course, with senior citizens or people over the age of 50 is kind of like their key demographic. But a lot of people know ARP when as soon as you hit like 45, they start sending you magazines in the mail. And it's kind of kind of like a a milestone of hitting that uh, next season in your life, so to speak. And Joanne Jenkins has been the CEO of AARP since 2014. But I said, you know, I want to do a little bit more insights. And I was very impressed with some of the things I had learned about her rise to serving over one of the biggest nonprofit industries in terms of assets and revenue. You know, they just have a lot of money and they have a lot of influence on top of that. 
And we'll get it, I think, in future episodes, we'll talk about some of the differences in nonprofits because we have not only the traditional nonprofit organization that maybe does work in education, does work in uh, environmentalism, right, conservation. A lot of people know that, but there's a lot of nonprofits that do work in terms of uh, think tank groups. We see a lot of nonprofits that do lobbying. We see a lot of nonprofits that uh, do all kinds of things. And so we'll talk about the different realm of the nonprofit world. But for the next, you know, seven, eight minutes, I really want to focus on this particular individual because I think she's really impressive. So Joanne Jenkins is originally from Alabama. And I looked up the, the city she's from. And she's from a city that's just in the Mobile, Alabama area. Uh, on an, a small island, actually, out there in, Al- in Alabama. And she had attended Spring Hill College, and she graduated as a part of the class of 1980. So she's still, I mean, she's still relatively young in a lot of respects. And I thought, and I saw that her career path has been very, very interesting. From 1981 to 1985, she was the executive assistant to the U.S. Department of um, HUD, which is the housing uh, I can never remember the name HUD housing and shoot, I should look it up real quick. But she was the the, the U.S. assistant to, to HUD, which is really really impressive being out there. The housing and urban development. I can never remember the name of it. So she was the U.S. assistant to that department uh, for about four years, and then she moved on to serving as the special assistant to Elizabeth Dole when Elizabeth Dole was running the U.S. Department of Transportation. So she did that from '85 to '87. And it's clear as I was reading more and more about Joanne Jenkins' life and her career, she moved to DC and she it's very clear she quickly was able to gain a lot of influence and a lot of friends in some really key positions of government. And so, so from 87 to 93, she does some work with the Department of Agi- uh, Agriculture, does some work in the private sector as well, which is pretty impressive. But the big splash that I saw kind of came, and you could tell she's sowing the seeds, right? I mean, whenever you're serving, I mean, if you're the special assistant to Elizabeth Dole, you're meeting a lot of folks. And she actually was a campaign, a voter campaign uh, worker for the Reagan administration during the 80s as well. So she was... Uh, it's clear she's a person who has the ability to meet, make friends, develop relationship, and she used that in so many ways to get to an amazing position. Clearly, with AARP, so from '94 to 2007, she serves as the senior advisor and the chief of staff, and is a part of the Library of Congress. And this is a position that uh, she holds for. I mean, you're talking 13 years. And she positions herself really well. That's what I kind of took away. She's able to position herself really well being a part of various government groups, working in the private sector, making friends and influence people, right? That's the classic book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. And so she's part of the Library of Congress, which I've had a chance to kind of visit in my DC trips, which is really nice. From 2007, to 2010, she serves as the chief operating officer for the Library of Congress. Again, you know, I love libraries. I'll talk a lot about libraries over these next couple of episodes. I thought that was just really impressive to serve as the chief operating officer for the nation's library. And then you see this is the kind of the big shift, a big change from 2010 to 2013. She serves as the president of the AARP Foundation. 
And, and a lot of people may not realize this, that a lot of, or you have a nonprofit organization, but you can also have a foundation organization. We see this a lot more in the for-profit industry where maybe you are Toyota or you are, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another organization. You're Sears Roebuck. You are Google, right? You have, you're a for-profit, you bring in money, you make money, like you have stockholders, whatever the case may be. But you'll have a foundation, which is a charitable wing, but they'll funnel money from the for-profit to the foundation to help with things like uh, giving out grants, doing nonprofit work. One of the biggest ones you see this a lot is Target, right? A lot of folks may know like Target will have 5% of their money will go to their foundation and then they'll use that money to kind of do charity work or do good in the community, right? We'll talk more about that in future times. But she serves as the president of the AA AARP Foundation for three years. And then she moves over in 2013 to serving as a COO um, with AARP before becoming an executive vice president in under a year. And by 2014, she's a CEO of uh, AARP. I mean, her rise in that in between time from being the COO of the Library of Congress to serving as a CEO of AARP was relatively quickly. But you can tell she set the foundation in so many ways as she lived and worked and played in the Washington, D.C. area. And I love the quote I, I, I had found it earlier where she says, um, being living in D.C., you never know where people are going to end up in, in that particular city because there's so many smart, so many educated people that are moving and shaking and doing so many deals uh, in the nation's capital. But more than anything, the big takeaway that I had discovered in doing my research in her over a span of many days and many hours is that she positions herself really well. There are certain individuals who they get to a certain position of power and it could be kind of rocky, right? We see this a lot in politicians. We see this a lot in the for-profit space and businesses. It could be rocky. And for the most part, I couldn't find any scandals on her. I couldn't find anything nefarious. And I think there's a lot of times where people think that in order to get to the top, you have to be ruthless. And that's true to a degree. But there's many more instances where you can be a good person, you can be a kind person, and still rise to a position of power. That's not to say you don't hurt feelings. That's not to say you don't have enemies, right, so to speak. I'm sure if we talk to enough people that have interacted with her, they'd probably say something like, oh, yeah, she was this, or she was that. But for the most part, there are many, many instances where you can get to an amazing position and still be calculated, still be smart, still be determined, and you don't really have to piss that many people off. And so she's clearly brilliant. She can make friends. Um, and, and I found a really interesting quote as I was doing some research from Laura Bush's 2010 autobiography, the book that she wrote back in 2010. And she says, and I quote, together with the help of his assistants, that's one of the department, that's the uh, key library congress when she says he, his assistants, together with the help of his assistants, Joanne Jenkin and my staff, we established the National Book Festival. And I thought, wait a minute, what? So I went back, did a little bit more research, and it turns out she's the co-developer of the National Book Festival that came out in like the early 2000s. And as again, I'm a person who spent a lot of time in libraries. It was just really impressive to see how much of a, of a root she has in her particular industry. And AARP is a pretty impressive structure. 
if you ever get a chance to look at the way they do business and the way that they are able to kind of work their lobbying and work their constituents. I mean, they, this is people that pay to be a part of this organization. And a lot of folks I know are happy with the way AARP does work. Because let's be honest, if you are a, a, a politician, if you are a for-profit group and you get a call and, and, and you're uh, if you're a, a junior congressman and you get a call about a particular vote that's coming up that's going to affect a lot of senior citizens and the CEO of AARP is on the phone giving you a call, you're going to pick up. And, and so their structure as a whole is just pretty impressive. Again, we'll probably end up focusing on them at, at a future time, but I was just really impressed with the way she is running the organization as a whole. And, and to be honest, the way that AARP, of course, as I get older in age, I'm hearing more about it and learning more about their organization. But it's just really impressive. And she doesn't make a lot of money. That's the thing. As for an organization that has almost $38 billion in assets, which is pretty crazy, she's only, according to her, the 990 on, on the organization back in 2010, she's only making one point. $285 million in compensation a year with another $125,000 uh, in estimated other comp compensation. So the amount of money in relative to how much she's in influence and under control of, I mean, she's at the head of the table of one of the biggest organizations in, in the United States. And yet the amount of money she's making, honestly, I think they're getting her at a bargain. And so we'll, we'll talk more in future episodes about uh, CEO compensation with nonprofits and executive director compensation. I, look, I know some nonprofits here in my state that don't bring in nearly as much money that you've never heard of. And they're making $900,000, uh, $800,000 for nonprofits of a much smaller size. So I want to definitely get into some of the aspects of CEO pay, uh, executive director pay. I think that's something I'll be interested in. But yeah, for, for today, our, our leader, one of the leaders in the industry is Joanne Jenkins. Check her out. I'll put some show notes in the link so you can learn a little bit more about her and, and you can kind of explore. All right, I think that's enough for today's episode. You can find us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Insider, or you can reach out to me at The Nonprofit Insider at Gmail. Send me an email. I got it in the show notes below. We'll see you on the next episode.